This is Dan Fagella, and you're listening to AI in Industry. This is the final episode in our month-long series on getting started with AI. Next month, we're kicking off an entirely new series, which I'll talk about at the end of this episode. We've had four really excellent interviews. Vlad Sejnoa is a favorite of mine from way back when we did our first interview with him at the very end of 2017. We've had Vidya, we've had Comcast, some excellent interviews. And what we do in these analyst episodes, these kind of cap-off episodes at the end of the month, is sort of tie the line between the interviews that we did in this series and the research that we've done here at Emerge. And we have a report called Getting Started with AI, Best Practices of Adoption. You can actually see that report. It's emerj.com slash A1. That's A as in Adam, 1. So emerge.com slash A1, you can see that report. And what we're going to do in this episode is tie the line between a couple of the themes that we heard throughout our interview series this month and some of the major themes from that report. The Getting Started with AI report draws from something like 50 of our best episodes with tech startups like Airbnb uh, or Facebook, as well as with larger organizations in oil and gas and in banking that are trying to adopt AI. What are the principles that work in both environments? That's what this report is about. It's about how to get started and not make mistakes. And we'll cover a couple of the, the nuances that we cover in that report in this episode. And the first major theme has to do with the difference between IT and AI. So we actually have an entire table about this. We've got a number of different graphics inside the full getting started with AI report, but one of them is a table that sort of lays out the difference between traditional IT and AI. A lot of this comes down to expectations. When we interview folks in sort of the stodgy or older industries, if you will, sort of brick and mortar retail or insurance or uh, logistics or something like this, for the most part, the people who are very savvy with AI in these environments, the people with a strong data science background, they're often very frustrated because the people that they work with expect AI to work like IT. So let me give you a couple examples of what that looks like. And some of these things will ring a bell based on what you've heard in our previous episodes in this month's series here. One of those has to do with time to deliverable. So in IT, IT is obviously notoriously challenging to predict when will we be done with a project. In general, there's all these funny rules of thumb. You know, it'll take twice as long as you think. It'll take three times as long as you think, whatever the case may be. But the fact of the matter is, it's somewhat understandable if you've solved a similar problem before when it comes to, to IT. And sometimes things will run for longer than you expected, but you can often still get there. If we're trying to hard code a system to produce X result or a software to be able to build X feature, you know, it might take longer than we think. But in general, if we double what our initial assumption is, we might be able to be safe and kind of take a gander at when we'll be able to have a deliverable result. With artificial intelligence or with machine learning, it's often impossible to predict with new projects. So unless we've solved a very similar project with machine learning before, unless we've used this specific data to solve this specific kind of problem, we may find ourselves spending four times, five times, 10 times longer than maybe we would have thought. At that point, maybe we would give up, but much longer than we initially would have thought, trying to figure out if, in fact, we can get a machine learning system to deliver the result that we're expecting, whether it's detecting fraud, whether it's predicting inventory levels. We may learn the hard way after six months 
of experimentation that we simply don't have the right data volumes or that our seasonality and the changes in our market make it so challenging to be able to realistically predict that machine learning is just not the right tool. We don't know what we don't know and, and machine with machine learning we're simply making a hypothesis. We're not hard coding something we know can happen. We're asking the question, can our data and can these algorithms meaningfully solve this problem in a way that is better than the current systems? And the truly disturbing fact is that often the answer is, no, we can't do that. So with AI, we have to go in not with a, when can we get this delivered by kind of headspace, but we really have to go in with an understanding of, hey, this is a hypothesis we're going to test. This will take resources. This will take time. This may not produce a result, but we believe that this is the best allocation of our data scientists and our subject matter experts because we think that it could move the needle to a certain degree. And this is why it's so important to have a goal in mind. We've had a number of our guests this month sort of emphasize that. So that's one element of how IT and AI are different in terms of expectations. We can go ahead and talk about some others. So let's go ahead and talk about the role of subject matter experts. Um, David Carmona was kind enough to speak with us about sort of how Microsoft is reorganizing their teams. David's obviously a GM of artificial intelligence at Microsoft, reasonably high up figure there, and gave us some of his insights almost across the board when we go into established industries. And again, I could pull out some other random established industries, investment banking, for example, or oil and gas exploration, or automotive, whatever the case may be, we find that the combinations of teams, again, this is something where people with a strong AI background come in and they feel frustrated because the expectations in IT and AI are very different. So in the world of IT, when it comes to subject matter experts, we may need someone there to help primarily define the functions, the capabilities of whatever solution is being built. So we need the business lead or the functional head of whatever the department is or the project to say, okay, when these circumstances happen, we need the, you know, let's say it's in a car or something like that. When these circumstances happen, we need this light to go on and we need this signal to be sent to the driver and, you know, we need these things to happen to the brakes, whatever the case may be. So these are, you know, engineers. These are maybe user experience folks who are sort of helping to find what needs to be done. And really their job is to say, hey, you know, this is what this is going to look like when a customer uses it. This is what is going to happen. Like if this, then that. And they can often kind of define that tree. Maybe they'll check in on it when it's, when it's done. But for the most part, their job is to kind of define what will reality look like when this software is built. When it comes to machine learning, we need subject matter experts for a lot more aspects of the project. So with machine learning, we need subject matter experts to help define the business problem and often sort of come up with how we're going to measure success. Hopefully they were doing that in IT as well. But we also need them there to help determine what kind of data might be required to solve the problem. And we also need them there to help determine whether the outcome is helpful or not helpful because it's often very vague and kind of qualitative. So let's look at an example like lead scoring. So we have a whole bunch of new business leads that are coming in uh, for our company. Maybe we're a retail bank, for example, and we want to score these leads based on who we should follow up with. Certainly knowing you know, what the end result needs to look like, sure, our top salespeople and our top maybe sales development people might be able to say, okay, here's what it's going to look like. Here's how it's going to prompt the salespeople. Here's what they're going to see on their side. All of that can kind of be mapped out and developed. But now we need to talk data. And now we have to get subject matter experts to talk about data. We need to ask them questions such as, hey, head of sales development, hey, head of sales, which of these factors about a lead do you suspect 
are going to be weighted most heavily when it comes to lead scoring. We can do this randomly, but you know, we would really, as machine learning experts, we would need your subject matter expertise to know which points of data to start with when it comes to, to testing a new algorithm to, to, you know, tweaking our hypotheses here. And then the sales folks would have to know, okay, you know, for us, recency of the lead is going to be a very, very high factor. Anything within the first, you know, three days is going to be preeminently important. You know, location is going to be really important. Anybody outside of these geo regions is going to be much less valuable to us. And so we need that information to be coaxed out of our salespeople, not so that we can hard code their knowledge, but so that we can use their intuitions to pull from the right data sources that tie to those factors that matter. So, you know, we could pull totally from scratch. We could say, oh, well, we look at the lead's last name and whatever letter it starts with, and we could test that as a factor. Of course, these are ridiculous things, and even machine learning expert wouldn't test things that are that random, but you don't want to shoot in the dark. We want to know what kinds of data, what kind of hypotheses to begin with that might be a good place to kick off. And again, we would need the expertise of our sales experts, or subject matter experts in this case, to be able to help inform the data sources that we pull from. And in addition to that, we would need a pretty consistent feedback loop from these people. It's not a very clear, often in IT, it's like, okay, if I push this button, does this happen? And if the answer is yes, we don't really need that much double checking on whether it works or not. Everybody understands it works. However, in the case of lead scoring, in this kind of machine learning model, we would need consistent feedback throughout the development of the product from our subject matter experts. They would need to tell us, hey, are these leads by your intuition and by maybe your experience in calling them and experimenting with them, are these leads better than the ones that you were guessing at by yourself? Are they better than the old system we used to use for lead scoring? And so we need a constant grooming and feedback from these subject matter experts. Now, what this often implies is that when we begin an AI project, we need our subject matter experts to be okay with being the point person. They need to be okay to be the team member that's part of this AI project. The frustrating part is that these people often are a little bit annoyed because they have a normal job. They have a way they earn commissions. They have a way they feed their family. And so if we're constantly pulling them into an AI project when they weren't expecting it, we're often going to see a lot of friction and a lot of resistance, and we're not going to get the kind of collaboration we need. So when it comes to an ML project, again, unlike a lot of IT projects, we're often going to need to set different expectations for the whole team to say, hey, you technical experts and you subject matter experts, you will be working together for X period of time. This is what you can expect. And that is something that often is not required in IT. In the full report, the Getting Started with AI report, we have literally eight separate factors that differentiate IT and AI, as well as kind of the core insight to reinforce. So what is the right way of thinking that's going to save you money and, and avoid mistakes? We have eight critical factors laid out in a full table. I've just given you two of them, but these analyst interview episodes are often much shorter. And so I'm just going to be moving on here. We'll get into our next sort of topic as we wrap up this episode. The uh, next and last topic in this kind of analyst breakdown episode of our getting started with AI theme on AI and industry is about the three phases of AI adoption. Some of you are already aware, and actually, I, so I pulled this idea from one of my research advisors. So we have another podcast that's called AI in Banking. So those of you in financial services or are interested in how AI is transforming financial services can go on iTunes and you can check out AI in Banking. You're going to see Emerge runs that show as well. One of our first guests, in fact, our first guest ever, uh, was a fellow by the name of Ian Wilson. Ian was the head of AI at HSBC. 
So a very high up role at, you know, one of the actually largest financial institutions in the world. And Ian had repeatedly emphasized this importance for an incubation period. And if you listen to this concept, as I talk about this final concept in this episode here, um, this is going to resonate with a lot of what you've heard from our other experts, from Vlad and from other people that we've had on this month on AI and industry. If you are interested in financial services, by the way, please do go ahead uh, onto your favorite podcast platform and type in AI and banking. We'd love to have you as a listener there as well. But this is a bit of a crossover topic. The actual name for this phase I got from Ian, uh, but a lot of the details uh, we've pulled from, you know, again, 50 plus interviews from all kinds of sectors. So here's the basic idea. When it comes to a machine learning initiative within a business, instead of going from proof of concept to then actually integrating a system, we often need a middle phase, which we might refer to as incubation. So let's talk a little bit about sort of the difference between proof of concept, incubation, and integration. And there's a lot more to cover. We actually have a full graphic on this about what each of these phases are. So if you're implementing an AI project, you can pretty simply get an understanding of when to move to the next one and when to move to the next one. Again, getting started with AI is all about how to make your first AI project painless and high return on investment. But regardless, we'll talk just about kind of goals. So broadly speaking, when it comes to the proof of concept phase, we want to really know If our data in a little sandbox, so we carve out our data, it doesn't have to be real time, and we figure out, you know, the algorithms we want to tweak with here. If we carve out our data, can it produce a certain result, a certain judgment, a certain action that we think could be useful? In theory, is this data enough to potentially deliver this result? It might not be in real time. It might not have to work with our user interface. It might not have to interact with our employees. It might not, you know, again, be being fed real-time data from the business. But if we just provide some data, so let's say, you know, anecdotally, we could say that this is some kind of a recommendation engine of some kind. You know, we could pull the information, the relevant data, maybe it's kind of user behavior, maybe it's previous purchases, whatever relevant behavior it is that we, we think we're going to be using. Can we use that? Can we test it in a bit of a sandbox? Can we see what kind of recommendations come up? You know, can we get some kind of feedback? Maybe we do use some real live users. Maybe we have some sort of hired users who are crowdsourced or something who can give us feedback on it. Can, in theory, can we produce recommendations that seem like they could have promise, they could be better than the ones that we have already. And so in a proof of concept phase, we might be tackling something like that. We're not running it live. We're almost certainly not putting it in the face of customers. We're almost certainly not integrating it into the workflows of our actual teams. We're just seeing, can machine learning and our current data deliver this result at all in an isolated environment? Now, what we don't do is give that proof of concept a thumbs up and then go ahead and integrate it and run it into our systems. Okay, cool. Time to plug this in. Time to put this in front of our customers. Um, really, that's that's often not going to be the case. We often need an integration or an incubation phase before integration where we're going to get a sense of how this would work if we were to bring it live. So one concept here is to develop kind of a run book to determine how to manage these AI processes daily, monthly, weekly, whatever the case may be. What kind of team members are involved? What kind of resources are involved? So a run book of this kind might involve, okay, here would be the upkeep processes. Here would be how the data would be fed. Here's who would sort of double check the results. Here's the feedback loops that we would need. Here's when and how we would run our tests and our experiments to see what's working better than other methods when it comes to our recommendations, whatever the case may be. So that's one element. Um, Another is we would determine how to properly train team members on workflows needed to manage this system. 
So a lot of this is going to be new to many of our team members. We'll have subject matter experts in marketing, subject matter experts in sales, maybe, uh, if we're still talking about this recommendation engine idea, and we would need their input. We would need them to be part of this process, part of the development of this product, part of the feedback loop into this product. And frankly, for the most part, particularly in newer projects in a company that doesn't have AI in its DNA, and that's most of you, and that's most companies in the world, we're going to have to train them how to be a part of that team. Like I said before, we're going to need to set a new expectation about how and when and how often they're now going to be a part of this general process. And there's a whole bunch of other phases here that go into incubation, but another that's really, really critical and that sometimes is addressed and sometimes is not is to security test the system to ensure that it's safe to go live. So if we're in financial services or we're in healthcare, we'd want to find ways to maybe maliciously tinker with the system. We'd want to find ways to ensure that the system won't maybe crack or break in ways that could make data vulnerable, could make our users vulnerable, could make our business vulnerable. So to be able to test the system itself in that incubation environment before actually going live, before putting it in the face of customers, into the workflows of our team members, that often happens in the incubation period. And then only in integration will we then kind of upgrade our teams and our talent to sort of fully lock folks into saying, okay, this is now part of your job, subject matter experts. You know, we won't maybe fully make that shift until it's actually integrated. But once it is, we really need to concretize our new teams. Um, we need to often, when it comes to integration, we need to begin fully upgrading our data infrastructure. It's all well and good when you can scrape out little bits of data and test it in a little micro environment. But when it's time to now take this live and make this part of our business, we now need all that data to be cleaned already. We need that data to be accessible already. We need that data to be feeding our system already. And so often this is going to involve overhauling our data infrastructure. Sometimes that has to be done before we go live with an AI application. Sometimes that can happen sort of in the background, but it's often going to be inevitable if machine learning is really going to be a part of our process. There's so much more in the Getting Started with AI guide. I'm literally just going over some small parts within some of the graphics that we have, some of the, the sort of adoption graphics. Essentially, again, we wrote this Getting Started with AI guide so that folks could have kind of a playbook, if you will, of how do we make decisions about our first AI project, under what cases do we build, what cases do we buy, what are the critical expectations we need, and how do we make sure that we see as much of a return as we can from a first AI project. And again, you can check out this report at emerge.com slash A1. That's E-M-E-R-J dot com slash A1. And that's it for this month's theme on getting started with AI. And the theme for the month of September is how to get an ROI from AI. So what does it look like, not just to get started, not just to pick a project, but what does it look like before we actually get started with a project? What does it look like during the implementation of a project? And what does it look like in our follow-up to actually see a financial return? How do we measure the return of an AI project? And how do we ensure that we actually get there? A lot of businesses, and you hear it a lot here on the podcast and elsewhere on Emerge, are experimenting with AI in ways that almost certainly aren't going to bring back any kind of concrete returns for them. And while financial ROI isn't always the best way to measure AI, it's important to bear it in mind and to ask, how can we be as sure as we can be, which isn't always 100%, that we can have a project that's successful in financial terms. That's what September is about. And our first interviewee is Sankar Naranyan, who is the Chief Practice Officer at Fractal Analytics. Fractal is a unicorn company based in Bangalore. These are sort of one of the premier sort of consultancies in the domain of data science. They work in consumer goods and a whole bunch of other sectors. And Sankar is very high up uh, when it comes to sort of the 
client-facing side of what Fractal Analytics does. So he's seen the inside of a lot of different businesses in different sectors, and he goes in-depth as to what Fractal has learned about how to measure ROI for AI. And he is the first episode in a five-episode series on the ROI of AI that's kicking off in September. So I'll ask you to join us there. Uh, and again, if you haven't already, check out emerj.com A1 and get a copy of the Getting Started with AI report that we've sort of drawn from in today's episode. So without further ado, we're going to wrap this one up and I will catch you next week here on AI and Industry. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of AI and Industry. This is your host, Dan Fagella. I hope that we catch you next week. Many of our executive listeners often get great ideas from our podcasts or our newsletters, but they end up coming to us for more help. So they might see some research project that we did with the World Bank, and they might want to do some of their own research on deeper market opportunities for AI in a specific sector or understanding the growth rates of AI in a certain domain. Uh, they might have seen some AI business strategy work that we've done with a pharmaceutical company and maybe ask about things along those lines or see one of the presentations that we've given at the United Nations and ask if we can speak at an event. Uh, and while we certainly do these things, uh, we're certainly involved with clients on pretty big projects on a regular basis, a lot of the time these messages will just end up in my personal inbox. People will find my email or they'll just find me on LinkedIn and send along a message. And this ends up being actually pretty tough to juggle at this point, given the travel schedule and given all the, the client projects that we're involved in. And few people actually know, particularly people who only listen to the podcast and, and aren't on Emerge.com or on the newsletter, uh, don't know that we actually have a services page that lists what we can help with. So we are not the best at everything, but in terms of what we do, which is mapping the capability space of AI and conveying that to executives in ways that help them win in the market, specific services tailored to that can be be found at emerj.com slash services. So here at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, we work with government departments, we work with public companies, uh, we work with organizations who are serious about making AI a competitive advantage. And again, we actually do list sort of the programs that we have. So many of the podcast listeners don't know this. These messages end up in my inbox and then I'm you know, traveling for two weeks and I feel really bad that I get back to people later, but you can reach us through that services page or simply send along an email at services at emerj.com, services at emerj.com. From there, Dylan or Marcus or one of our team members will be able to get back to you much more quickly uh, than I would via LinkedIn. So if you're interested in doing more with what you've learned here, if you have serious business initiatives related to artificial intelligence and you want to take your organization to the next level, just simply reach us at emerge.com slash services, that's emerj.com slash services, or just email services at emerge.com, that's emerge with a J. So thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode. Next week, again, we're going to be diving into AI use cases and trends and conveying the transferable lessons that you can bring to your organization, and I look forward to having you here next week.